Welcome to the Amber Show's Time to Read. Each Friday, we're, we're reading the New York Times bestseller, A Piece of Cake. It's a memoir of Cup- Cupcake Brown's life. Brown's confessional mem- memoir is one you can't easily put down. Her life is nothing short of a miracle, and that, w- uh, that was a quote from the Chicago Daily News. Quick recap. Last week, last week, she ran away from Diane's foster home. Um, she met a prostitute who introduced her to a pimp. Uh, the prostitute had introduced her to uh, selling her body for money. She was only 11 years old, but she had no other choice as far as trying to get any type of money because she had to eat, she had to live, and she was only 11. Uh, the pimp told her he would have to take all of her money and she would be prostituting for him. At 11 years old, she did have street smarts. Uh, even that didn't sound as though it were the right thing to do because she knew if she's selling her body and she should be getting her own money. So she ran away from the prostitute in the pimp's house. She's on the street. Her daddy is gone. Daddy was the man who raised her with her, along with her mother before they divorced. That's the only man she ever knew to be her biological father. She had an uncle junior. That was her mother's only sibling and brother. And she had a brother named Larry whom she didn't get along with at all. She left Larry at the group home when she ran away and never told him she was leaving. Daddy, who raised her, uh, lost custody uh, because it turned out he wasn't her real father. And he knew, but uh, the children didn't know. And the real father came and took them to court so that he could take the children, Cupcake and her brother Larry, because he thought he would get money from an insurance policy that the mother had left, but unbeknownst to him, once he got custody, he found out through the courts, no money was coming to him. Only Uncle Junior was in charge of their money. Mr. Burns was very mad. That's the biological father. He had never met the kids, and he dropped them off at Diane's, and they have not heard a peep from him since. So here we go. As I walked, I came upon a very busy road. A nearby sign said the road led to some highway. I didn't know where the highway went, but it looked like it was heading out. There was a stump sitting a few feet off the road. I sat down on it to rest and contemplate my next move after having fleed from the prostitute and the pimp. I realized I couldn't return to Diane's even if I wanted to because I didn't know where she lived or how to get there. What a mess I was in. I sat there. I was tired. I was cold and I was hungry. When a car approached, the passenger side window slowly slid down. The driver, a white man, leaned over and asked if I needed a ride. Before I could respond, a police car pulled up behind him. The policeman hadn't stopped for me. He stopped because he thought the motorist was having car trouble or in need of some kind of help. It wasn't until after the cop had gotten out of his car and started approaching the motorist's window that he noticed me sitting on the stump. He paused, looked at me, then at the motorist, then back at me, as if he were trying to decide which needed his attention first. He decided the small black girl sitting on the side of the road would be first. What are you doing here, he asked softly, beginning to move toward me slowly and cautiously, trying not to startle me. I heard him, but didn't respond. I was trying to think of what to say. I mean, I had been taught to trust the police. I never had a reason to distrust them. 
until now. I was starting to realize that everyone wanted something. Do you live here, he asked as he continued toward me. He seemed like a nice man. The motorist had also gotten out of his car and was following behind the policeman. Do you know her, the cop asked the motorist. No, he replied. I just saw her sitting there, which seemed strange. I was concerned, so I pulled over. What's your name, the cop asked. Levert, the vet, I replied. Levet, that's a pretty name. What's your last name? I told him, but since I didn't trust him, I only answered direct questions. Are you lost? Yeah, I replied. It wasn't a lie. I was lost. He didn't ask me why I was on the stump so early in the morning. He didn't ask me if I'd run away. He didn't ask me if I'd been raped, beaten, or what. He asked if I was lost, so that's the question I answered. Well, where do you live? I was uncertain about how to answer this one. Should I say San Diego? Although that's where I was from, I didn't live there anymore. But should I say Lancaster? That's where Diane lived, and not look like that's where I'd be stuck. I don't know, I replied. He noticed me shivering and asked if I wanted to sit in his car while he made a call to see where I belonged. He gave me a big smile. Yeah, I answered. Besides, I thought, it's going to be warmer in there than out here. The cop told the motorist he'd take over from there. He opened the passenger door of his cruiser for me and told me not to touch anything. He got in and radioed the dispatcher to see if a child with my name had been reported missing. We waited a few moments while she checked. Neither of, neither of us saying anything to the other. He flipped through some paper up on his clipboard. I had never been inside of a police car before, so I marveled at all the intriguing gadgets. Soon the dispatcher came on and told him that no one with my name had been reported missing. Do you have any relatives, I asked. He asked, turning to face me. No, I said, I live in a foster home. I was tired. There was nowhere else to run, and I didn't know what the alternative to Diane's would be. I had no more fight left in my little body. I had given up. Do you know the name of your foster mother, he asked. I told him. The dispatcher was able to tell him where a Diane Dobson lived, and we headed that way. Within minutes, her house was in sight. Turns out that road with the stump was left in a half was less than a half a mile from Diane's house, and that road would have led me right out of Lancaster. Diane's house was dark when we pulled into the driveway. Holding my hand as we approached the door, the cop rang the doorbell. When Diane opened the door, the cop cheerfully said, Look like we found something you lost. Oh, yes, Diane cried with tears in her eyes. Where did you find her? She shouldn't have been, she should have been an actress, I thought. Diane continued. She must have been sleepwalking again and wandered off. She does that a lot. I didn't speak up. I didn't say, liar. I had admitted defeat. Can I speak to you privately for a moment? He asked Diane. He was looking at me as if I were a little slow and might be harmed by what was about to be said. Sure, she replied as she grabbed his arm and gently led him into the formal living room. When she, returned on, on, when she turned on the light, he seemed immediately impressed at what he saw. Refusing her invitations to sit down in one of the beautiful plush baby blue chairs, the cops stood talking to Diane for a few minutes. Because they were whispering, I couldn't understand what they were saying. I did notice as they talked, the cop was admiring the living room. When they ended their discussion and made their way back to me, he commented on how beautiful the living room was. Why, thank you, Diane exclaimed, obviously proud that someone had admiration for her precious room. Whatever Diane told the cops, he seemed to accept it. 
He bent over so that he could put his face really close to mine, smiled and asked if I was okay. Yes, I whispered. I wanted to scream. Don't go. Take me with you. This chick is crazy. Her nephew is here living here until he goes into the service and he's been raping me. We're beaten and made to clean this entire house. But I didn't. I just stood there with my head hanging down. Something told me that screaming would be useless. With that, he told me to be more careful and patted my head, bid us a goodbye, and left. It all happened so fast and matter-of-factly. As far as I know, there was no discussion as to how I came to land on a stoop by the roadside. He never asked Diane if I had run away or why. He never asked her why she hadn't reported me missing. He never asked why, if Diane knew I had a habit of sleepwalking, she hadn't taken better precaution to prevent me from sleepwalking right right out of the house. Diane closed the door and watched through the window as the cop left. I didn't move. Neither of us spoke. But as soon as that cop was out of sight, she spun on me so fast, I felt the sting before I saw her hand coming. She slapped me hard. I fell to the ground crying. I kept trying to tell myself, don't cry, don't cry, because I knew she got off on me making me cry. But it hurt real bad. So I sobbed all the while trying to hold it in. The other children were not awake. But then I heard them stirring. I think they were scared to come into the room. Diane hollered, Get your stupid asses out of here. Y'all can hear this. Y'all can't. Y'all can hear this if you want. The others grimly marched out of their rooms and gathered around us. Diane liked to do things with an audience. Listen, you little bitch, she snarled as she grabbed me by my hair and forced my face towards hers. I hate a lot of things, but one thing I really hate is cops at my fucking house. Luckily for you, I didn't know your, I didn't know your little stupid ass was gone. But the next time you call yourself running your way, you'd better say stay gone. Because if you were, if you come back, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Do you understand? Yes, I cried, and she allowed me to drop my head. But then she angrily snatched my head back again, forcing me to look into her hateful eyes. We stared face to face for a moment before she slammed my head onto the floor and stormed off. At first, I couldn't understand why I felt severe stinging in the back of my head. I looked up after her and realized why. Strands of my hair were hanging from her still-clutched fingers as she walked away. The other children stood there quietly staring at me and listening to me cry. Slowly they turned one by one and went back to their rooms, crying and rubbing my bruised forehead and reddened cheek. I followed. No sooner than I went to my room and laid down on my bed to try and get some sleep, she was ranting and raving about how dirty her house was and how lazy we were. She stormed in the room, told us to get our lazy asses up and clean. I was exhausted. I, didn't, I hadn't slept in almost 24 hours, and the booze and weed I'd gotten from the prostitute candy and from her pimp had long since run out. Diane ordered me to start in the bathroom. I obeyed. I didn't mean to go to sleep, but I was so tired. I sat down to rest and didn't wake up until one of the kids came banging on the door, screaming that they had to go to the bathroom. Luckily for me, Diane was still cautious of the police, so she only cussed me out. She didn't hit me. We cleaned the entire house that day. Same as always. By the end of it, I was too tired for my nightly reflection on the events of the last couple of weeks. It was the first time since finding my mother dead that I got a full night 
of uninterrupted sleep. One good thing that came out of the cop returning to meet Diane's was that for some reason he scared her, at least for a while. She was very calm for the next few days. And for the first time that I knew of, she warned Pete, her nephew, to behave and to stop raping me. Diane really hated police, even though the cop took no report and in no way inquired into the situation in her, at her house. For several days, she nervously roamed from room to room, looking out the windows for something. What? I didn't know. Shortly after the cop returned me to Diane's, I turned 12 years old. There was no party, no cake, not even a happy birthday. Didn't matter, though, because my birthday was the same day Pete left for the military. I figured not having to worry about him raping me anymore was my birthday present. Diane's fear of the cops returning didn't last long. As time went on, her abusive rampage became worse and more frequent. Severe infractions got you beat with what Diane called her bull whip, a stick wrapped tightly in leather and individual leather strands hanging from the end. Small night knots tied throughout each strand. Diane told us that Diane told us that the wonderful thing about the whip was that not only did it hurt like hell, but it never la left lasting marks. She said this was because the whip was made of special child-bearing leather. She regularly warned us that if we ever told anyone about being hit, they wouldn't believe us. And what's more, no one gave a fuck about us anyway, she said. She'd fuck with our minds. We'd clean a room, but by the time she got through with inspection, she had us thinking our crazy asses hadn't done shit. She'd be ranting and raving about dust and dirt being everywhere, or she'd ask you to find something that had been hidden. For example, one day she started screaming and yelling that one of her precious teacups was missing from the living room. She warned that it better be found and fast, and there'd be, or there'd be hell to pay. The foster kids frantically scrambled around trying to find it. Connie remained in her room, of course, comfortably watching TV. The cup wasn't found that day. As punishment, we were restricted to our rooms for the remainder of the evening and weren't giving, given any dinner. Later, later that night, as I passed Diane's room on my way toward the bathroom, I heard her and Connie laughing at their game and the fear on our faces. Diane was holding the supposedly missing recap teacup and telling Connie she'd hidden it in Connie's room. That bitch, of course we'd never find it. Not one even thought to look in Connie's room. When I returned to my room to tell the other girls what I'd overheard, they didn't believe me. They knew that Diane was crazy and manipulative, but for some reason they felt that such a trick, if true, was just too cruel. I gave up trying to persuade them, deciding to leave them to their own beliefs. We were regularly called fuckers, bitches, hoes, sluts, whores, little motherfuckers, black sons of a bitches, goddamn son of a bitches, goddamn worthless fucks, worthless pieces of shit, useless fuck-ups, foster fuck-ups, good-for-nothings, dumb fucks, and anything else she could think of. Diane often neglected to feed us, and since we weren't allowed in the kitchen ourselves other than to clean it, we sometimes went hungry. When did we eat? When we did eat, our meals almost always had beans and rice. Though we rarely got meat, there was one way to get it. I discovered this trick when I'd failed to clean the hallway baseboards adequately. I'd worked all day and was starving. My stomach 
had gone from growling to howling. I was actually looking forward to the usual ration, so I was pleasantly surprised when instead of beans and rice, Diane set a plate of chicken and rice before me. Ignoring the rice, I reached right for the drumstick like it was water in a desert. I grabbed it and took a bite. It wasn't very flavorful, but I didn't care. I was eating meat, though very, very greasy meat. Grease was dripping, dripping down both sides of my chin like a waterfall. As I wiped it away using the back of my hand, I glanced up to see the other kids staring at me with what I looked like horror. I stopped chewing immediately. What's wrong with y'all, I asked. No one replied. Forget them, I told myself. They're just jealous. Just then, I looked down at the drumstick. For some odd reason, the grease oozing from inside was red. Nervously, I looked at the back of my hand that I just wiped my chin with. It had a streak of red splattered across it. Red? Where the hell is all this red coming from? Then it hit me. The bitch had given me half-cooked chicken. It was still bloody inside. I dropped the drumstick, spit out what I had in my mouth, and pushed my hair back from the table so hard it toppled over. As I ran to the bathroom, I heard Diane and Connie laughing. They were they had been standing behind me, watching me, waiting on me to discover their chicken surprise. Once in the bathroom, I plopped down on the floor and stuck my head in the toilet. I hadn't eaten all day, so there was nothing to throw up. I sat there, dry heaving, trying to free my mind of the image of eating half-cooked chicken. Once I was sure nothing was coming up, I flushed the toilet, washed my mouth and hands, and returned to the kitchen. Diane and Connie were still there, and so was the bloody plate. Diane pointed to it and told me that I had to eat it or go to bed hungry. It was a hell of a predicament to be in. I chose to go hungry. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be the last time. Diane's emotional abuse was especially painful because we all came to her already burdened with some kind of catastrophe or misfortune. One set of sisters from Oceanside had been removed from their home because they told the teacher that they were being molested by their stepfather. The rest of the story wasn't clear, but they said that the situation came to a point where the social worker assigned to their case told their mother that if they got rid of the stepfather, the girls would be allowed to return home. The girls got quiet for a moment. One started to cry as the other finished telling the story. Without hesitation, their mother told the worker that she had never been without a man, was getting older and wouldn't be without a man. In fact, couldn't be without a man. She looked the worker dead in the eyes and told him, keep the kids. Several days later, the girls were at Diane's. We children had had enough despair and distraction in our lives. I missed my family immensely. I longed for my mom to see her face, to hear her voice. I desperately needed guidance, support, and love, none of which was never found at Diane's. Physical touching of any type was forbidden, other than Pete's, of course, when he was raping me. We weren't even allowed to hug each other or touch each other. Connie, too, had her own forms of cruelty. She would use her status and and approval as a means of turning the foster children against each other. There was a pecking order among us foster kids. Whoever was in Connie's good graces got promoted to special treatment. The person would get extra helping of food, the good food that Connie and Diane ate, could play in the front yard as long as Connie was with that person, and could even go into Connie's bedroom where she had a big screen color TV, a stereo, and every game a child would want. 
one word from Connie and her favorite could pass his or her chores on to some less fortunate kid or could at least escape a punch to the stomach from Diane for some random transgression. As a result, the foster kids turned on each other and were in constant competition for Connie's friendship and approval. But I refused to kiss her ass. I acted like I didn't care whether she or any of the other kids liked me. Inside, I knew better. I wanted to be liked, longed for someone to love me, but I would not allow them the satisfaction that they were hurting me or that I needed anything from them. They may have suspected they were getting to me, but I show as hell wasn't going to show it. One day I was sitting on the floor in the den watching TV. I had resigned myself to the fact that I was stuck in this torturous hellhole. So my new strategy was just to pretty much stay out of Diane's way, especially since her latest trick was to tell me that I deserved what Pete had done to me because I was dark, ugly, motherless, and insignificant. The other children were in the backyard playing, vying for Connie's attention. I had never played much anymore. I wouldn't allow myself to chase behind Connie for her approval. Besides, I was usually too tired, too sore, too sad. Out of the blue, Diane came in, plopped her fat ass down on the couch, snapped off the TV, and slapped me on the head. You ain't never gonna be shit, she sneered, because you ain't got no mother. She said that, and my mother hadn't been dead three months. Damn, bitch, I thought. I'm in here minding my own business, and here you come in here fucking with me. Now, Connie, she continued, putting emphasis on the name, she's going to be something because she got me, a mother. With that, she popped me on my head again and walked out the room. I just sat there thinking about what Diane had said. (laughs) It got my blood flowing again. It renewed my determination to get the fuck out because, hell, if if I wasn't going to be shit, I damn sure wasn't going to be shit in Lancaster. I decided it was time to try and run again. Only this time, I'll do it right. Diane enrolled me in school. I was grateful to be in school because it allowed me to get away from Diane during the day. Connie and I went to the same school, which was 99% white, but we didn't hang out together. She referred to me as her cousin because she said that calling me a foster child was too embarrassing for her. I didn't care what she called me as long as she stayed the fuck away from me. Luckily, I found a couple of portals out of my life, booze and weed, thanks to Pete and Candy. I smoked and drank every chance I got. I loved being loaded. Everything looked and felt good when I was high, even me. It's true when they say that about birds of a feather, I quickly found other kids like me, kids who wanted to and needed oblivion. One good thing about hanging out with kids who drank and smoked weed is that it didn't matter that I was black and that I was ugly and that they were white. The only color we were all cared about was green. Be it money or weed, green was keen. Buying booze? It was easy, even for a 12-year-old. I just stood outside the liquor store and asked an adult who was going in to buy me some beer or whatever type of alcohol I wanted. If they agreed, most of the time they did, I just gave them the money and waited. They'd come back out with the goodies. If they refused, I waited and asked the next person. After watching my friends do it, I began shoplifting small things, purses, wallets, and cigarettes, which I would then trade for money or weed. I was really good at stealing cigarettes, which I'd 
also begun smoking. However, <clears throat> I never really had to worry about the money for my habits, at least not yet, because all of my friends got allowances and were more than willing to share what they had. I started using my friends unknowingly to assist me in my plan of escape. From talking to them, I began learning about Lancaster and the nearby towns. Walking to and from school, I also started to figure out how to navigate my way around town. And my friends taught me that by sticking out my thumb, I could go anywhere for free. One of my friends told me she'd heard that I had to be gone for 24 hours before Diane could report me missing. If she reported me missing. But that wasn't, but she wasn't sure if that was true or not. I hoped it was because it would give me at least a day's head start. Although my friends knew my life was fucked up, they never asked for particulars and I never told them. Besides, we were usually so high, anything I told them would have probably been forgotten. I figured the less they knew, the better. Because if anyone asked them anything, when they replied that they didn't know, they wouldn't be lying. My friends gave good information about how to get out of Lancaster, but no one knew how to get to San Diego. They had heard of San Diego, but no one knew how to get there. It never dawned on us to look at a map. I figured I'd just wing it. <clears throat> Excuse me. One night while cleaning Diane's bathroom, I failed to polish the sink faucet to her satisfaction, so I got the whip. That damn whip was becoming my regular form of punishment. As I got ready for bed, my body stinging from the beating, tears streaming down my face, I knew it was time to go. Again. Just as before, I went to bed in my clothes. Around four in the morning when I was sure everyone was asleep, I slipped out the window. Learning from previous mistakes this time, I grabbed a jacket on my way out. I felt more in control because I had a plan. I knew where I was going. I walked swiftly, but I didn't run. No need to. Diane wouldn't even know I was gone, and even if she did, she couldn't report me for 24 hours. I made my way down to the familiar stump, a welcome sight, because this time I knew that once I left that stump, I'd be leaving Lancaster. I was glad I had grabbed the jacket, which provided adequate protection from the crisp morning air. I stood with my thumb out for an hour or so before a van finally pulled over. I ran to it and I hopped in. The van was empty inside except for a few tools strewn around the back. The driver was a thin black man dressed in a cool tie-dyed t-shirt and jeans. Where are you going? he asked. I wasn't prepared for that question. I thought you just hopped into the car and went. Remember, I'm 12 years old. I'm going as far as you can take me, I replied. It wasn't a lie. I hadn't thought this part out. I figured I'd first just go get out of Lancaster, then worry about getting to San Diego. I'm going to Thousand Oaks, he said. I'll take you that far. Cool, I replied. As we pulled off, I didn't realize I was going in the opposite direction of San Diego. We rode in silence for a few moments. He didn't ask any questions, and I didn't talk. You smoke, he asked, as he pulled a joint from his breast pocket and lit it. Hell yeah, I replied. Wow, what luck, I thought. Good, he said. I got some Grandma Yang, too. I'd never heard of Grandma Yang. But if it made you feel good, I was down. The bottle he handed me read Grandma Yang. But I guessed that it was pronounced Grandma Yang. And like everything else alcoholic I'd drunk before, I loved it. 
Oh, yeah, I said to myself as we continued to cruise away from Lancaster. This running away and hitchhiking is all right, I thought, as I took another swig of the yang and another puff of the joint and congratulated myself on a well-executed plan. A little while into the ride, the driver who said his name was Bob asked me if I was looking to make a little money. Sure, I replied. What's up? I thought he was talking about stealing something. He looked at me, his mouth forming into a sly grin. He slowly took his right hand off the steering wheel and began rubbing his crouch area. As I glanced back up at his face, he was looking at me and licking his lips. It was then I realized what he wanted. He wanted what Pete had wanted and what Joe had wanted. I sat there for a moment thinking about it. I hadn't done that since the night with Candy. In fact, I had pretty much put it out of my mind. Whatever it did come up, I'd get drunk or high enough so that I'd forget about what had happened or I just didn't give a fuck. I surely never planned on doing it again, but now that it has come up, I remembered that it could be a way to make money. I had nowhere to stay and nothing to eat. I would need food and shelter, and I remembered Candy, the prostitute, saying that nothing in life is free. No one was going to give me a job and that no one gave a fuck about me, which Diane had proven. Still, I remained unsure until Bob gave me another swig of the yang. Fuck it, I thought, as the liquid warmed my insides. What do, you, what do I got to lose? Besides, me getting the munchies, that's the only thing. Fuck it. So I turned my second trick with Bob. Joe was my first trick with Candy the prostitute. He wasn't violent or mean in any way. In fact, Bob was kind and gentle. He promptly paid me my money and dropped me off in Thousand Oaks, just like he said he would. The lessons were clear. Men want you for sex. Sex makes you money. Money bought necessities like food, shelter, booze, drugs, and booze. Maybe make life and the sex weren't so bad. Most important, doing anything anywhere was better and safer than just sitting at Diane's, waiting for the next beating. I'd never been in Thousand Oaks, so when Bob dropped me off, I plopped down on a curb, enjoyed my high school, enjoyed my high, and checked out my surroundings. A gas station sat catty corner across from me. What looked like a flower shop sat on one corner, a small market on the other. I looked behind me to see what was on my corner. It looked like a two-story building, an office building. Since there was no apartments or homes in sight, I figured it was some sort of business district. A couple of blocks away, I thought, I saw a hotel sign. Enough looking around, I scolded myself. You got to figure out what we're going to do next. I didn't know where I was or where I was going. I hadn't thought much about what to do now that I'd successfully made it out of Lancaster. I pondered the question for another half hour or so. Finally, a little voice told me to call Uncle Junior. I walked across the street to the gas station to use the payphone. I picked up the receiver and dialed zero and told the operator I wanted to make a phone call. She told me to put in a dime. All I had was two $20 bills that Bob had given me. Do you want to call collect, she asked. I didn't even know what collect was, but as long as I did, it didn't require coins, I was all for it. Sure, sure, I replied. 
She asked for my name and Uncle Junior's number and then put me on hold. A few minutes later, when I heard Uncle Junior say hello, I started crying. I couldn't talk. I was so happy, all I could do was cry. We hadn't spoken since Mr. Burns took us away because Junior had no idea where we'd been taken and Diane never allowed us to use the phone. I was so busy trying to survive, it never dawned on me to try and sneak a call. But now, hearing my Uncle Junior's voice, I could let out all the sadness and hurt I'd been holding in. He let me cry for a while and didn't say anything. Once I got myself together, he asked me where I was. I told him I was in a city called Those Thousand Eight Oaks. I gave him the rundown of how Mr. Burns had given us to Diane, who had taken us to Lancaster. I briefly told him about Diane's violence and didn't go into great detail. I didn't tell him about Pete, Diane's nephew, raping me because I still remembered Pete's threat that he would kill my family if I told. Junior listened intently. He was angry and warned and wanted to call the police, but I told him not to because they would only return me to Diane's just as they had done the last time I'd run away. He asked about Larry. I told him I didn't know about Larry. It was everybody for themselves. He moaned when I said that. Cup, he's your brother. Fuck him, I screamed. I'm having enough trouble trying to take care of myself. I began to cry again. Okay, okay, calm down. He sounded distressed. We decided he would send me some money through Western Union and I would catch a bus to San Diego. We'd worry about what to do with me once I go there. I gave him the name of the gas station I was at on the surrounding street. He took down the numbers of to that payphone and said he'd call me back in a few minutes. As I waited for him to call me back, I again checked out my surroundings. I was sure that I had saw a hotel several blocks away. Maybe I could stay there. There was also a park nearby. The sound of the phone ringing startled me. I answered it. It was Uncle Junior. He said there was a Western Union about 10 blocks from where I was. However, it would take two to three days for the money to get there. Junior asked if I could wait that long and what I would do in the meantime. I lied and told him I had a friend who lived nearby, but that the friend didn't have a phone. I also told him I had some money. He didn't ask about the friend or what, where I'd gotten the money. Thank goodness. My mom, my money for drugs and booze. His was for the bus ticket, we agreed. I would call him every day until the money arrived. I didn't want to stay on the phone too long. I was concerned someone would notice me and call the police. But I didn't want to hang up either. Just his voice was comforting. I love you, I blurted out. I just felt like I had to get that out. I love you too, he replied softly. And don't worry, it'll be okay. We hung up. Now all I had to do was lay low for a couple of days and I'd be home sweet home. I made my way to the hotel. It was a dump, but they still wanted $25 a night. I had at least two nights to go until Junior's money arrived and all I had was $40. I decided to skip the hotel and had it and headed toward the park. On my way, I bought some booze. Enjoying the midnight sunshine, I was sitting on a park bench drinking when I spotted some white girls sitting in a car nearby smoking what I was sure was a joint. Without hesitation or shame, I approached them and asked, where I could cop some weed. They gladly drove me to their connection's house around the corner where I bought a dime bag. 
We returned to the park where I smoked a joint with them. That's one thing about druggies. They'll gladly take you anywhere you need to go if there's a high in it for them. I spent the next couple of days partying in the park and the night sleeping under the park benches on the freeway underpass. As I promised, as promised, I called Uncle Junior collect every day. He didn't know that I was drinking and doing drugs. Still, he was concerned about my being out there all alone. But what could he do? We both knew it. If he called the police, they would take me back to Diane's, and I swore to him that I'd run away again. Finally, the, mo- the money came. I walked the 10 blocks to Western Union, but the little old white lady behind the glass counter said she couldn't give me the money because I didn't have ID. ID? Fuck, I yelled. I'm 12 years old. I ain't got no fucking ID. I was pissed. I don't know when it happened, but at some point, I'd lost the ability to control my anger. I was stomping around, cursing and crying. The little old lady was scared, concerned, and confused. She said she wanted to help me, but the rules required I have ID. After enduring a little more of my temper tantrum, she decided to call Junior, who vouched for me. Still, it took a while for Junior and me to convince her that we wouldn't sue her before she finally agreed to give me the money. Junior sent me $100. I was rich. I asked the Western Union lady to call me a cab. She said she wasn't something she said it wasn't something she would normally do, but seeing as that I was so young and obviously out of place, she agreed. I stood outside waiting for the cab. It took only 15 minutes to get there, but it seemed like forever. I was excited about going home and ready to go. Finally, an old Mexican guy pulled up in a bright yellow cab. I hopped in. I told him I was heading to the Greyhound station, but would be making a stop because of the way on the way. In broken English, he said he'd stop anywhere I wanted as long as I paid the waiting fee. We stopped at a nearby liquor store. I paid the cabbie $5 to go in and buy me some mad dog. We stopped. He bought the mad dog. I also had to pay the meter running for doing this time, for his time that he was in the store. I didn't care as long as I got my drink. He dropped me off at the Greyhound station where I drank the booze while waiting for the bus. Four hours later, I boarded the bus headed for San Diego. I had a long bus ride ahead of me, but I didn't care. For, for one, I was quite tipsy from the mad dog and would be asleep most of the way. Second, I was out of Lancaster and away from Satan herself. And most important, I was finally going home. Uncle Junior met me at the Greyhound station in downtown San Diego. I could tell from his bulging eyes and dropping dropped jaw that he was shocked when he saw me. First of all, I was dirty. It never occurred to me that one should bring a change of clothes when running away. On top of, the ha- on top of that, my hair was a mess, nor did I think of bringing a comb. And worst of all, I stank. I hadn't bathed in days because I'd been living in a park. He was happy to see me nonetheless. The first thing we're going to do is get you a bath, he chimed as he gave me a big hug. He said he couldn't get hold of my daddy, so my Aunt Pam was going to keep me until they could figure out what to do. Aunt Pam was one of my maternal grandmother's nine siblings. Finally, someone from my sorry-ass family was stepping up to the plate. When we got to Aunt Pam, she immediately stuck me in the tub. When she came into the bathroom to bring me a towel, she noticed the whelps marks on my back. Although they were now fading, they were still visible. What are those, she asked. 
I couldn't see what she was referring to, but I didn't need to. I knew what she was talking about. I remembered the painful pounding of Diane's whip just a few days before. Those are from the whip, I replied nonchalantly. The whip, she screamed. What whip? I told her about Diane and her abuse. Aunt Pam scurried out of the room saying she was going to call the authorities. After a while, she returned saying she also called Uncle Junior, who was coming over to see the whelps for himself. Why'd you call the authorities, I asked. Because this looks like child abuse, she screamed. So that what it's called, I thought. I never knew what child abuse meant. When Uncle Junior got there, Aunt Pam told him she had already informed the child welfare agency who'd said they were sending someone over. Uncle Junior looked at my back and winced. He tried to wait for the agency folks, but he had to go to a mandatory meeting at work. Aunt Pam convinced him that she could handle the authorities by herself. It's a good thing Uncle Junior didn't wait. It took them forever to send someone. The little white lady that finally did they finally did send wanted to know who had legal custody of me. Aunt Pam tried to explain what she knew, that I'd been given to my biological father, who in turn had given me to a foster mother whom I had to run away from. The lady interrupted Pam and told her that the first thing they had to do was determine where I legally belonged. However, in the meantime, because neither Junior nor Pam had the legal right to have me, they would have to take me to Hillcrest Receiving Home. Hillcrest is a large facility in San Diego that housed children who had been abused, neglected, or abandoned. Aunt Pam walked with me to the lady's car while telling, me, while telling her about the welts on my back. The lady never lifted my shirt to see them. She said that the folks at Hillcrest would look into it as part of the investigation. I hugged Aunt Pam before hopping into the car, headed for Hillcrest's receiving house. I loved Hillcrest. It was like a big party. Tons and tons of kids. Several days after I got there, Larry came in. It seems he too had run away from Diane, though he refused to tell anyone why. Just as he'd done for me, Junior sent him some money to return to San Diego. None of the other kids at, Hill, at Hillcrest knew Larry and I were siblings. We didn't feel or act like brother and sister, so we never told anyone we were. Shortly after Larry's arrival, I heard that the I, I heard that the elementary school I'd been attending when Mama died was having a sixth grade graduation ceremony. Believing that allowing me to see friends I'd grown up with would lift my spirits, someone I don't know who decided I should attend the ceremony. I was ecstatic. I'd get to see my old friends and my sixth grade teacher. Mr. Johnson, of whom I'd had a secret crush on. I told Junior I wanted to wear one of my mother's outfits to my graduation. I knew exactly which one, too. One of my favorites, a, wet, a red and white suit. Yep, that's what I would wear. Cup, you can't fit in her clothes, he gently respond, responded. I don't care. I want to wear something of my mother's. Okay, okay, he agreed. After Mama's death, Uncle Junior had moved, moved all of her belongings, or at least what wasn't taken by scavengers, into his garage. Because everything was done in such a hurry, it wasn't organized anyway. So he spent hours going through box after box to find that red and white outfit of my mama's. He brought it to Hillcrest along with the red shoes and matching purse I told him about. 
I thought I looked cute in my mama's outfit. The clothes were way too big, the shoes a little high, and the large white vinyl purse way over the top for a 12-year-old. Still in my eyes, I looked like my mama, so I looked good. But when I got to the graduation, I was crushed. My friends didn't react the way I thought they would. In my mind, I had imagined a tear-jerking reunion with everyone saying how much they'd missed me and how great I looked. Instead, they laughed at me. Even my two closest friends, Mona and Rosemary, who we called Rose for short, fought back giggles as they asked, what are you wearing? They did at least say they missed me and were sorry to hear about my mama's death. The other kids, though, were nowhere near as polite. They said I looked like an old woman. They laughed and pointed and whispered. Even some of the parents looked shocked at my attire. I heard one of them murmur in the most piteous voice, poor thing, she looks so pathetic because she lost her mother, you know. There's no woman to dress her. I wanted to run and hide. My hurt turned to anger as the people I thought were my friends, the people who hadn't seen me in months, said nothing about my mama's death or my unexplained absence and instead teased me about my clothes and how grown I looked. Life at Diane's had taught me how to put on a mask to make hurt and pain imperceptible. I learned that no matter how much someone hurt you, you never let that person know it or see it. So amongst the giggles and the snick snickers, I squared back my shoulders, stuck out my chest, proudly walked across the stage. Actually, actually, I wasn't used to three-inch heels, so I most likely stumbled across it, and I received my sixth-grade diploma. A couple days later, the court scheduled an emergency hearing. Junior had called Daddy to tell me to tell him what was going on, but neither of them nor Aunt Pam were allowed to go to the hearing. Larry and I weren't either, so I don't know what happened, but I do know that one of the counselors in Hillcrest said the court needed some time to investigate things and check out my story. Since Hillcrest wasn't really a long-term long facility, and because they were unsure as to how long the investigation would take, they decided to place us in a foster home in the San Diego area. Another hearing would take place in a couple of months, at which time they would have to decide what to do with us. But they couldn't find a home willing to take me and Larry together, so we would be put in separate homes, which was cool with both of us. What pissed me off, though, is that the court said that until it was decided where we would go, there would be no non-parental visits, which meant that neither Uncle Junior nor anyone else would be allowed to visit us. Mama still hadn't been dead for but six months. I was sent to live in a foster home in a small town east of San Diego. The foster mother who came to get me said her name was Mrs. Bassett. She was a short, plump black woman who wore a wig. It wasn't a very good one because even a little child could tell it was a wig. She had piercing gray eyes and large thick lips that opened into a wide smile. Miss Bassett lived in a nice big house just like Diane's except the Bassetts were twice as big. It was two stories and they had a pool in the backyard and I never knew people who had their own pool. Mrs. Bassett's husband was a tall burly light-skinned black man with green eyes who pretty much kept to himself. He didn't really speak much. He grumbled a lot. As we entered the house, he grumbled barely audible high. The Bassets had two boys of their own who were 9 and 15. They also had two temporarily 
temporary foster boys who were brothers. Diane and Mrs. Bassett shared similarities other than their big, beautiful homes, one of their obsessions with cleanliness. But the major difference between them was that at the Bassetts, everybody cleaned. At least all the children did. The only person who never cleaned was Mr. Bassett. The Bassetts drank a lot, every day actually, which meant there was always booze around for me to steal. And because they stayed drunk, they were, op they were op oblivious to what I was doing. Mrs. Bassett wasn't as physically as abusive as Diane, but she cussed us out on a daily basis, something terrible. She'd talk about you so bad you'd wish you would've, she would have hit you and get it over with because she'd been drinking, which was all the time. She just wouldn't shut up. She'd talk about your mama, your mama's mama, your mama's mama's mama, and even her mama. She really did have a talent for making you feel like shit. Ugly little black bitch, she called me. I didn't need any help with feeling ugly. Still, I felt like I could handle being at the Bassetts. I still had to clean like a slave and got cussed out up and down, back and around. But at least I wasn't getting raped and beaten. And I was eaten. But I still had yet seen the real Mr. Bassett. Because I'd missed quite a bit of sixth grade, the nearest junior high, La Pressa, thought I'd be more caught up if I took some summer classes. I actually enjoyed summer school because I had great classes, English and choir. English was my favorite subject, probably because I was good at, at it without really having to try. And although I couldn't sing a lick, I could carry a note if you put it in a bag. I still loved to sing. I also liked the mix mixture of kids at La Pressa. They weren't all white or all black. Shortly after starting summer school, I decided to sign up to be a cheerleader for Children's Football League. I'd heard they were accepting cheerleaders, and I'd always wanted to be one. So I thought, what the hell? When I asked Mrs. Bassett, she screamed, Hell no, you don't have time to be doing no fucking cheerleading. Damn, she was mean. Let the girl cheer, Mr. Bassett grumbled from behind the newspaper. He was sitting at the table. At first, I wasn't sure if it was him who spoke. He normally just walked around like a drunken mummy, grumbling under his breath. He never responded when, Mr. when Mrs. Bassett cursed him out, which was daily, and he never reacted when she cussed us out, which was also daily. Us, all he did was drink and watch TV and periodically grumble. I was shocked. I didn't know what to say or do. Mr. Bassett had never spoken up for me before, not even the time when Mrs. Bassett had slapped me for failing to clean up to her satisfaction. That day, as I lay on the floor sniffling from the blow, he walked right by me. Let her cheer, woman. It's not like she doesn't do enough around here. The least you could do is let her have some fun after school. He spoke very softly and very slowly as if he were trying to convince her cautiously. I just stood there. I didn't know what to say. Obviously, neither did Mrs. Bassett. She just stood there, fuming. Fine, she retorted. The little bitch can cheer if she can get if she can get there. What little hope I had was beginning to fade. Cheerleading practice was held at a football field a few miles away from the Bassett's house. There was no way I could get there unless someone would drive me. I'll take her, Mr. Bassett replied. He was still speaking quietly and cautiously. Hmm. Mrs. Bassett snorted as she angrily hurled a dust rag at me, smacked me in the face. Happy that she'd hit her mark, she turned and stomped upstairs. I took the rag and began 
dusting the living room furniture. When I realized that I was actually going to be a cheerleader, a smile actually started to crack my face for the first time since I couldn't, since I couldn't remember. It looked like my luck was finally starting to turn around. A couple of days later, Mr. Bassett and I were on our way to cheerleading practice. We were in Mr. Bassett's big yellow van. Vans were in back, the vans were in back then, and his was wildly fixed up. It had a small TV that sat in a specially made corner in the back. It had a jamming stereo system with 12 speakers strategically placed around the inside of the entire van. It even had a little refrigerator. It was gaudy. There were carpeting, dashboard, even the dash, even carpeting on the steering wheel. I was so excited about cheerleading that I didn't even mind being in this gaudy old van. I was finally going to do something creative, something positive. There was a Kmart half a mile up, so from the Bassett's house. I'd seen it a dozen times because you couldn't get to it from the Bassett's without passing it. Mr. Bassett pulled into the parking lot. Maybe he's got to get something, I said to myself. Maybe he'll get me something. But once parked, Mr. Bassett didn't get out of the van and go into Kmart. Instead, he climbed into the back, sat down on the couch, and made me come to the rear seat. I stayed in the front. I didn't want to move. Shit. I knew what climbing to back seats meant. I felt all the enthusiasm drain from my little body. Come here, he slurred. It was then that I realized he was slightly drunk. Unfortunately, I wasn't. Obediently, I made my way to the back. He reached into his shirt pocket and pulled out a little pink pill. As he handed it to me with a beer, he said it was acid or LSD. Which is it, I asked, acid or LSD? I'd never heard of either one, but Mr. Bassett didn't like that, he, that I was asking him. The frown on his face and the wrinkles in his huge forehead told me he was ordering me to take it. So I did. As I swallowed the pill and chugged the beer behind it, Mr. Bassett stood up, unhooked his belt, and pulled his pants and underwear down to his ankle. By now, I knew what this meant. I started to lie down, but he stopped me. He grabbed me by my hair and forced me to kneel in front of him. He pointed his thing at me. Suck it. Was he kidding? No one had ever asked me to do that before. This was something new. I was pondering this old command when he punched me in the jaw. The blood knocked the blow knocked my head into the refrigerator next to me. A tear trickled down my face as I straightened myself back up. He grabbed my head and forced it down. If you bite me, I'll kick your ass, he hissed. It became obvious to me that my dream of being a cheerleader was just that. But soon, it no longer mattered because the little pink pill began to kick in. All of a sudden, my jaw dropped, hurting all of a sudden, my jaw stopped hurting, and the horrible reality in front of me transformed into a lovely fairy tale. Suddenly, it seemed as if I was sucking a lollipop in a sunny, daisy-covered field. And the van wasn't a van after all. It was a beautiful, giant, yellow butterfly that was going to fly me away from this wretched place. Yup, I started tripping. We never made it to cheerleading practice. In fact, I never even went to a single cheerleading session. Instead, three times a week when we were supposed to be at practice, we were in the parking lot of Kmart. Mr. Bassinger said that out of cheerleading practices were okay because we weren't having sex. Since I didn't know any better, I believed him. 
Besides LSD, Mr. Bassett also introduced me to cocaine. When I came to think of it, it was white heaven, indeed. In my encounters with Mr. Bassett, he always had plenty of weed, LSD, cocaine, as well as a never-ending supply of booze, all for me and all at my disposal. And I'm 12 years old. During our practices, I would often marvel at how inattentive people can be. I asked myself if anyone else wondered about the yellow van that was frequently parked in the Kmart parking lot, if anyone noticed that no one ever got out of it and no one ever got into it, but the people continued milling around and about the parking van, going about their shopping tasks, no one even wondered about the big yellow van. It was during one of our practices that it occurred to me who actually gave me the name Levette. See, when Mama told me that Daddy changed my name because he didn't like Cupcake, I thought she had meant my Daddy, not Mr. Burns. Hell, I had never even heard of Mr. Burns, but it was not my Daddy. It was Mr. Burns who changed my name from Cupcake to Levette. The same Mr. Burns who caused me to be up in the van having cheerleading practice with 45-year-old foster father. That man was no father. He was an asshole, plain and simple. Nor did he deserve the right to change my name. I made up my mind right then and there that I would never refer to him as anything except asshole, although years later I also allowed myself to call him a sperm donor, and I would take back my birth name, Cupcake. And since Levette was the name chosen by the fucked up asshole who was directly responsible for my fucked up life, I would use that name when I did fucked up stuff. Levette would be my bad name and Cupcake would be my good name. The realization was one good thing that came out of those cheerleading practices. But there was another. Mr. Bassett began to stand up for me. He would no longer let Mrs. Bassett hit me or even cuss me. Leave her alone, he would bark in my defense. I mistook, I mistook his protection for love in my mind when I was sucking on him because in return he was doing something for me, protecting, protecting me. After attending a few practices, that's what we called it, he cut down my chores so I would have to clean as much. And whenever Mrs. Bassett left the house, he'd let me ditch my chores and watch TV with him, though he never touched me in any way unless we were at practice." End quotes. And when Mrs. Bassett returned and started fussing, he'd step up and tell her to get off of me. Our practices, she afforded me a continuously supply, he afforded me a continuous supply of drugs and alcohol, which I had come to depend on for sanity, tranquility, and confidence. Mr. Bassett also made sure I always had plenty of cigarettes. In other words, once we started cheerleading practice, Mr. Bassett took care of me. I learned quickly Mr. Bassett never had to punch me again during practice. I learned to do what he liked and how he liked it. But don't get me wrong, although I acted like I liked doing this to him, I was very much aware of how fucked the whole setup was. I was a 12-year-old druggie and boozer that sometimes turned tricks whose only claim to fame was being good at cheerleading practice, which wasn't really cheerleading practice. A short time later, I started my period. Although I knew what it was, I wasn't expecting it. I was at school one day when one of the girls told me something was on my pants. I went to the bathroom to discover them soaked. 
The school nurse called Mrs. Bassett to come and pick me up. All the way home, she cussed, out, cussed me out because I'd messed up my clothes. A couple days later at practice, Mr. Bassett told me not to worry about getting my period or about what we were doing. He said that since it wasn't sex, I couldn't get pregnant. Cool, I said, but could you keep that bitch wife of yours off my ass? I asked as I bent to snort a line of coke. He poured me another rum and coke and laughed. I'll do what I can.